0: The following is a podcast from St. George's Episcopal Church in Arlington, Virginia. We invite you to support the ministries of St. George's Church through a one time or recurring donation. To give, visit our webpage, www.st.georgeschurch.org. The word saint is spelled in full. St. George's is a vibrant and inclusive community that is committed to loving God, serving others, and changing the world. I'd like to open just with a prayer. Almighty and most gracious God, giver of all gifts, help us to keep a holy Lent, that in our actions and prayers we may bear witness to your Son, Jesus Christ as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 I am uh, Bob Pritchard, uh, one of the supernumeraries among the clergy here, uh, former assistant Uh, current uh, priest associate, which means the priest who hangs around on occasion and doesn't get paid. But uh, uh, I would like today uh, to cram a whole lot of things into a short presentation and uh, what would arguably be a uh, sort of let long uh, study. I want to talk about in this season of prayer and repentance and new resolve about America's most abiding public sin, and that is the sin of racism, often, usually, whites against non-whites, but not exclusively that in this country. And I'd like to talk in particular about the development of slavery and the first wave of emancipation, which for some strange reason we rarely talk about in this country. That is the effort to end slavery between 1776 and 1832, which brought the end of slavery in all the states north of the Mason-Dixon line. And then, of course, there would be no further change uh, except in the west as that line was extended to the west until the American Civil War. Uh, it is a story that involves Uh, Among other things, lots of Virginians and lots of members of the Church of England. You may have heard in the last year um, news that 2019 was the 400th anniversary of the bringing of slavery to Virginia. A group of African servants were brought to Jamestown in that year. If you have a long memory, you may also remember a news story carried in the Washington Post in 2012 which explained that Ancestry.com had discovered that Barack Obama, while descended from free Nigerians or free Kenyans on his father's side, was also a descendant of the first enslaved person in Virginia who was legally enslaved in 1647. That sort of invites an interesting question, isn't it? Slavery came in 1619 and the first enslaved person was in (coughs) 1647. So I wanna talk about that ambiguity, about the institution of servitude in the American colonies in the 17th century and then talk about some of the religious dynamics to the debate about that development. A judge by the name of Higginbotham, who was a federal judge in Philadelphia, uh, began a study of slavery about 50 years ago that pointed out something that people routinely ignored, and that was that the institution of slavery was not an established institution that was brought to Virginia in 1619 and to Bermuda in 1614. Because in fact, at that time, there was no basis in English law to hold somebody in perpetual slavery. It did not exist yet. And so it took a lot of legal work and judicial action and argumentation in order for slavery to be a fixed institution. There had to be laws to support it. And that work, in the case of Virginia, isn't really done until 1705. So for the entire 17th century, it is a motion, it is an institution in transition and in formation. Now, if you look at that century, the 17th century, you'll discover that there are a lot of serving people in the British colonies in North America. Most of them are white. Indeed, most of the population, two-thirds of the population of Maryland and Virginia are white servants who have come from England. Massachusetts, which has a lower percentage of servants, had about a quarter of the population were servants, most of whom came from England. So until the 18th century, There are lots of serving people, but most of them are European Americans, largely from England, who have come and have come under acts of indenture. Now, the indenture is itself already a change in law. In England, apprenticeship laws allowed somebody who wanted their child to be taught a craft to sign a contract with a craftsperson saying, I will give to you my child for seven years and you will teach them how to be a printer. Now you wonder why it takes so long to learn how to print. Um, You don't start out learning how to print. You start out setting the fire and cleaning the floors and feeding the livestock and doing other work and eventually you begin to earn a task, learn a trade, and then at the end of that period of time, you're a journeyman and you're able to go free and you begin to move toward your own uh, effort of establishing yourself in a trade. What happened in America was, people began to take that law and repurpose it. That is, how about a contract between somebody who wants labor and somebody who is willing to come to America? We won't teach you anything. We'll simply use you for a low-level work, but we will pay off the cost of your journey. And so, theoretically, all these, most of these serving people were European-Americans who agreed to a contract by which they would come to America and then work five to seven years in order to pay off the expenditure that the owner of the plantation or the business paid in order for you to come? Theoretically, that was always a voluntary choice. I found, you know, uh, four or five years ago, um, sifting around in Ancestry, that the, the first people named Pritchard who were in Virginia were two brothers who were living in a little town in Wales and an English sea captain came by and said, would you like to see you and all your friends what it would be like to to take a turn around the harbor and see what it would be like on a real sailing boat? And they took off and they didn't stop and they arrived in Virginia and then the captain sold indentures, Uh, people purchased indentures for all those people and uh, they became servants. Now, what happens in 1619 is a group of African American people arrive in Virginia uh, five years before in Bermuda, they very soon thereafter will show up in Barbados, the English colonies are all doing the same kind of thing, uh, then in Jamaica, uh, when that becomes a colony, they arrive and so there's no law that says you can stay in slavery, so what they do is they say you're going to have an indenture which is longer than everybody else's indenture because it was more expensive for us to bring you here. And then that indenture grows longer and longer. So by the middle of the 17th century, people are proposing in Bermuda that we just standardize the indenture to 99 years for anybody who is an African American. There's only one case of using that same length of indenture for a European American in Bermuda that anybody's been able to find, but we'll give a long period of indenture. Now, interestingly, that doesn't say anything about the status of a child. But it does say that a person is longer and longer in servitude. Now, if you look at Virginia in about 1650 or 60, you'll discover that about a third of the population is made up of free people of African heritage. And an interesting thing has happened. Until the 1680s, almost no one who is African comes to Virginia directly from Africa. They are people who have been in the Caribbean, uh, sometimes have uh, been in plantations in the Caribbean, and then they come to Virginia through secondary sales, often by Dutch traders, who bring more people into America. So they, they arrive and many of them, or at least a percentage of them, have figured out European-American laws and customs while they're in the Caribbean. And so what they do is they arrive in Virginia, and they, when they are not released from their indenture after a reasonable period of time, they go to court and sue because they say indentures can't last longer than this period of time. And up until the 1690s in Virginia, you have people going to the courts, and saying, that's not the way indenture works. I came here as an indentured servant. You have to let me go. And the result is you've got this growing number, particularly in Virginia's uh, eastern shore. You've got a large community, a growing community, of free African-Americans who have served out their indenture and therefore are able to uh, claim in the courts the right freedom. Something happens, two things happen in the 1660s, however, that begin to change the circumstances very quickly. And the first is events that take place in London and in England at large that affect the availability of free persons to enter indentures. There is a little fire in the city of London <laughs> which burns down much of London. It leads to a crisis but then to a building boom because there are all these buildings that have to be rebuilt. And so there is a boom and there is a great need for people to go into construction and build those buildings and to maintain those buildings and to clean up the mess that's there already. And secondly, the last visitation of the bubonic plague in England is also in the 1660s. So you've got this combination. Fewer young people available to enter indentures, more people needed for work in London, and suddenly it's getting more expensive and more difficult than the colonies to persuade people to come from England to the colonies. One of the results of that is that the colonies began to uh, accept encourage <coughs> French Huguenots and Dutch and other Protestant people from Europe to come to the American colonies to serve in these same roles. But the other response to that is to begin to call for the importation of more persons from Africa. Now the second thing that happens is that in 1660, there is on the British throne now the restoration of Charles II, and you suddenly have members of the Stuart family who, are in, who have been impoverished by 20 years living in France, who come back and are looking for wealth and prosperity and for a place of importance in English society. And one of the things they decide is that the Dutch have been making entirely too much money in the slave trade. And so in the 1670s and early, Uh, uh, 1660s, early 1670s, the King of England charters the Society of Royal African Adventurers, which is then named the Royal African Society a decade later, and enters the slave trade and persuades the parliament to do at least uh, two things. Number one is to grant a monopoly to that organization in the trading of slaves to engage in war with the Dutch to make them stop selling enslaved persons to the English to undermine that monopoly. And at government expense to build a whole series of forts in Africa in which enslaved persons are held before they're transported. And so the Royal African Society goes on uh, to import more enslaved persons than any other organization when you think of the American colonies. Remember, even though James II and Charles II are actually secret Roman Catholics and convert at the end of their lives to the Roman Catholic Church, they are the nominal heads of the Church of England. So you've got sort of the head of the Church of England, the supreme governor of the Church of England, who is supporting strongly the institution of slavery as a way to make money for the world. And what happens is then, in the 1660s and thereafter, there is a whole series of new legislation that marches on in an attempt to make the institution of slavery something like what it has already been in Spanish and Portuguese territory, a lifelong institution in which the children of the enslaved are enslaved, in which one is in this permanent condition and in which it's increasingly difficult to argue that you just have an indenture which is going to be worked out in a period of time. Higginbotham points, Botham points to a decision made in the Virginia colony in the 1660s, I think 1661 <coughs> or two. And that was a decision to reverse English law to say hereafter, all children of African women will follow the status of their mother and not their father prior to that time, if an African woman voluntarily or most often involuntarily uh, bears a child who is the child of a white master, that child is free because the father is free. They suddenly reverse the law so that this person is in the same status of the mother, whatever that status would be. There's a woman uh, named Rebecca Ann Getz teaches at Rice um, University, teaches history, who wrote a book with an interesting title. It was called *The Baptism, um, The Baptism of Virginia. And her central premise is, as you look at this development, one of the key questions is a basic religious question. Who is baptized? And who, what are the benefits of baptism? And when is it appropriate to offer baptism to a person? Those persons early on who had gone to court and had sued for their freedom on the grounds that they signed an indenture, and indenture didn't last forever, were generally aware of a principle that had been followed in English law and in most European nations, which probably dated back to the Crusades. And it was this. If you were in a battle with another nation and you took a prisoner, that prisoner of war could be sentenced to a period of time at labor, but it was not lifelong and it wasn't perpetual in that person's family, unless that person were a Muslim. This was the mirror of what the Muslims were doing, and of late people have argued that in between the 16th and the 18th century, Muslims enslaved as many as half a million European Christians in North Africa and in Turkey. Um, And so there was a, a period of time in which people were using this religious argument. We wouldn't enslave our own members, but if you are a heathen person, and that would be a Christian if you were a Muslim, that would be a Muslim if you were a Christian, you can stay in slavery forever. You can be in a servant for the rest of your life and it can become perpetual. So the people who went to court always pointed out, we are Christians, and therefore we cannot be held in perpetual slavery because as fellow Christians, we do not do that to one another. And the courts responded favorably in many cases to that argument. The response of that was that many large plantation owners objected to the baptism of their African servants because they were afraid that the people would turn around and argue for their freedom. So there's a debate about who's baptized. Is religion, as Matthew's gospel would have it, is the Christian faith something intended for all the world, as Acts of the Apostles, is this for people in all languages and nations? And there's a whole list of folks which includes Cyrene in Africa and other areas. You know, is this a faith for everybody, or is this a faith which is only a national faith? Uh, is this only for us? And that's the debate. I ran across a um, letter by James Maury, who is beginning about 1750, so the next century, is a parson in Louisa, Virginia, and he described to uh, one of his cousins, who was also a clergy person, his experience of a baptism soon after he becomes rector of that parish. He uh, calls people at a service to be baptized, and whites and blacks stand up to bring children forward for baptism. And then the warden stands up and basically tells all the African-Americans to sit down. Maury baptizes all the whites. And then he says, is there anyone else who would like to be baptized looking to black members of the congregation? Many of them are enslaved people, and they have been so cowed by the warden that nobody comes forward. Maury is furious, and he goes to his warden, and. Says, well, you know, are you saying that we, we have a service and then first we baptize the blacks and the, uh, the whites, and then when that's done, we baptize? Are you talking about sequence? And the uh, warden says, no, black people should not be baptizing this service. Mari objects, and what he begins to do is he just has a later service in the afternoon. So he has an early service where he baptizes, and then he has a later service where he baptizes again for African Americans. But it seems as though his warden doesn't want baptism at all for African Americans. There is a kind of guarding of privilege that seems to be going on. And Getz notices something funny that happens in laws in Virginia and elsewhere after 1760, and that is uh, after 1660, and that is increasingly legislation that said whites uh, or English servants and African servants suddenly began to say Christian servants and non-Christian servants, a sort of presumption that people who are African aren't as Christian. And what the courts initially do is they try to uh, sort of go in between and they say, okay, if you are a Christian African-American when you are enslaved, you can go ahead and sue in the courts. You've got some grounds. You can say that you can't be in perpetual slavery. But if you are baptized after you're an enslaved person, it will have no effect. And so Virginia in something like 1767 or 68 uh, or 1769 uh, 1669 i'm sorry adopts an act which says that hereafter in virginia let it be known that the baptism of a person has no effect on their status as an enslaved person now what gets says and then uh, while this is going on maryland new york new jersey connecticut in particular all copy the same kind of acts uh, i think that Uh, Barbados is the first country that comes up with a, uh, English colony It comes up with a code which is very clear about perpetual life slavery. It is then adopted in Jamaica and then in the Carolinas. So it's sort of copied. People are passing these bad acts around and they are in a number of places. Get's notes that slavery becomes, that Christianity becomes a very important element in arguments both in favor of slavery and against it. Those who are in favor say, look, you can read in the Bible that they're enslaved people, and they often cite this really curious passage about Noah's son, Ham. If you look in Genesis, there is a story about Ham uncovering the nakedness of his father and being cursed to be the servant of his brothers thereafter. Now, if you look at the passage, it would seem that that may be a Jewish excuse for the enslaving of people in Canaan after the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the Holy Land, because Ham's progeny include Canaan. And so this is the Canaanites, this is an excuse. But it is repurposed by Muslims in the eighth and ninth century to explain why they're enslaving other people and by the Portuguese and Spanish by the sixteenth century to justify their enslaving of non-European people in Europe. Now, it doesn't, it's not, it's not fair. I mean, that's not, it doesn't say anything about Africa being or or Native Americans being descended but it's a a sort of purposed argument that is is used uh, all the way up to the American Civil War. Uh, and used in many slaving societies, so it's a, an argument that gets passed back and forth. The uh, second thing, uh, second argument. Uh, so the arguments are: there are enslaved people in the Bible, and what about this uh, the stigma of ham uh, that supports slavery? The people who oppose slavery um, talk about the universality uh, of the Christian faith, the, uh, the pre- portrayal of Christ as a servant, uh, the calling of Christians to be servants of all, and Old Testament passage which says, anybody who is a a stealer of other persons and put them into slavery can be put to death. So you've got sort of biblical arguments on both sides. Now, if you're looking at the sheet, what I'm doing is I am kind of moving to point three, and I've given you, uh, if you get really curious, text you could look at and kind of chase the stories on your own. Um, In uh, about 2005, a really bright young professor at Columbia University by the name of Christopher Leslie Brown, he's a Yale graduate who then went on to get a D-Phil at Oxford, Um, writes a book which he calls Moral Capital. And I can't understand why people haven't paid more attention to it except maybe it's too complicated and subtle, but he he has this wonderful observation that he's gotten by reading English records. And he says, you know, people today in America point to the obvious contradiction of Americans writing a Declaration of Independence talking about human life and the fact that slavery continued to exist in the colonies and in America. People noticed that in the 18th century as well. And indeed, in the 1770s, there starts to be this great pamphlet war between England and the the American colonies in which the American colonies talk about their freedom and rights and the English Board of Trade, which is sort of like the pamphleteers for, for Britain in, in America, begins to say, who are you to talk about liberty? You hold people in the most depraved situation possible. You hold people in bondage. You deny liberty. How in the world can you possibly call upon us to respect your rights when you don't respect anybody else's rights? Good argument. The Americans answer that. Who do you think brought enslaved persons from Africa to the United States, to the American colonies? The King of England? In fact, that's one of the complaints in the Declaration of Independence. You, you, you brought these enslaved people. Who made the money over importing people? The English and the English royal family. Who are you to argue that we are doing something wrong when it's your fault in the first place. Now, the, the reason that Brown uses this title, Moral Capital, he says, you know, arguments about slavery haven't changed in 150 years. I mean, people were arguing in the 1660s the same thing that they're arguing at the time of the American Revolution, and indeed, they will use the same arguments right up to the American Civil War. But sometimes arguments have traction in terms of public policy, and other times they don't. And sometimes this kind of pamphlet war that one nation gets into another puts nations in a kind of box in which to be consistent, they have to behave better, in order to support their own claims against somebody else. And indeed, that's what starts happening in England and in the American colonies. People start saying, geez. We've done this terrible thing. We've got to do something. We've got to make ourselves look better in this debate. So that, in fact, people will be persuaded by our arguments and people will not support this revolution that seems to be brewing uh, in the American colonies. And so uh, Brown focuses on a small group of people, which include people on both sides of the Atlantic, People like Granville Sharp, who is an Anglican layman whose father is the Archbishop of York. William Wilberforce, everybody's hero in the anti-slavery movement, um, for his lifelong work to get England to abolish slavery. And Dr. Benjamin Rush uh, of Philadelphia, who is a signer of the Declaration of Independence and also is an opponent of slavery and is arguing back and forth uh, with and keeping in touch about these efforts. And Brown is right. Somehow the arguments already advanced suddenly began to have some kind of success. It starts in the English courts in the 1770s, in the Somerset case, uh, in the early 1770s. An English judge says if an enslaved person is brought into England and that person leaves, the master, there is no legal right of the master to recapture the person and take them back into servitude. Now, that doesn't end slavery uh, because enslaved persons have to know about that before they take that step, but it begins to undermine slavery. That act is copied by a parallel action in Scotland um, about a decade later. And interestingly, Vermont and Massachusetts adopt the same kind of provision. You, if a person is enslaved, they, you have no right to hold them in perpetuity. And often when it's argued, they say, look, we just signed the Declaration of Independence. I mean, we're talking about all people being create, created equal. How in the world could you possibly hold people in servitude? It's entire opposition to what we've always proclaimed. Legislatures follow. In the case of the United States, in 1789, the Congress, uh, the nation's uh, individual legislatures adopt the Constitution. And the Constitution gives the Congress the authority after 188 to end the importation of all slaves and new enslaved persons in the United States. And Congress will act on that in 188, ending the importation of new enslaved persons into the United States. In the case of England, the parliament in 1807 does the same thing, ends the bringing of new enslaved persons into the British Isles in 1807. Individual legislatures then in New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, um, Delaware, not Delaware, uh, New Jersey, um, all began to adopt provisions ending slavery gradually, and what the law usually says is, when it becomes July the 4th, any person born after this date, now you notice there is a kind of parallel between American independence and what's made, any person who is born after this date will become a free person when they reach the age of 25 or 28, depends on where in the world you are uh, and in the individual state. And so suddenly there is in place a provision to end slavery gradually in middle colonies and immediately, theoretically, uh, in New England. um, What happens in Massachusetts? uh, Massachusetts bans slavery, but it doesn't, I think, adopt provisions to enforce that act until a little bit later. But there is the, the basic legislation is there and then later somebody says, and you can arrest somebody if they don't release their enslaved person, and so it is enforced. So there is a a kind of great movement, and it's clear at the same time that there is strong support for this, particularly among New Light Christians, among Quakers and Mennonites. So the New Light Presbyterians and the Baptists um, began to preach that slavery is wrong, and that you cannot be a member of their fellowship unless you set persons in free. John Wesley preached against slavery, and the Methodists initially make the same provision. You cannot be a Methodist if you hold people in servitude. <coughs> so there is this kind of bright moment that the Quakers do something rather curious. The Quakers and the Mennonites are the only groups that will consistently hold this position up to the Civil War. The Presbyterians and the Baptist and the Methodist all began to undermine their position when they realized that there are some rich slave-owning people who would like to contribute to their denominations and they began to uh, fall away And what they, uh, what the Methodists do. There's the best records in the Methodists. What they say is, anyone who holds a person in servitude may not be a member of this church uh, I- unless they, uh, if they do not release their uh, persons in servitude by next year. And then the next year they adopt the same act, but they just <laughs> extend it forward. And they do that for a number of years, then finally they, um, they extend it for a longer period of time. I will say that clergy, of all denominations, have a kind of mixed record in terms of supporting or not supporting slavery, the, 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 the major clergy trick um, is to marry someone to whom enslaved persons are entrusted, and so they can say they're not owners. Deborah Derek Jarrett, the great Anglican preacher in Virginia, uh, always could say he was a poor man and owned no one in bondage, but his wife <coughs> held 300 people in bondage. You know, So you, there, there is a, a kind of, uh, they, they recognize it's wrong and they try to figure out, uh, the Methodist church will break up in Uh, 1848, uh, precisely because there is a man, a bishop in Georgia, whose wife holds a number of people in um, servitude, she dies, and suddenly he is the one who is the master for those people, and he can't do the dodge anymore, and it leads to the division of the Methodist Church into two groups. Um, In the case of old light Presbyterians, or I guess old school Presbyterians, and Anglicans, Um, the movement was uh, kind of, in some ways, the movement about emancipation shifted to their leadership through something called the American Colonization Society. And the American Colonization Society had the idea that they were gonna encourage people to voluntarily liberate their own persons in servitude and resettle them in Africa. Now, just a, a thought, but again, one that's not widely known. The British followed the same policy in the American Revolution that Lincoln followed the American Civil War, which is they tried to appeal to enslaved persons in order to support their cause. And so they set up, for example, the King's Abyssinian Regiment. So they had an African-American regiment fighting with the British and many, uh, of the British units had an uh, African pioneer unit, which were escaped enslaved persons who served as scouts because they knew the neighborhood and they could tell people exactly what, uh, where to attack and where the weak points were and where you could cross the river and all those kinds of things. When the war was over, the British, over the objections of the Americans, withdrew with 15,000 former persons in servitude. And they resettled them in Nova Scotia as a, a big colonial place. Many of the people found, particularly those who were coming from South Carolina and Virginia, found that to be an inhospitable climate. Not really. <laughs> uh, and so what they did was they uh, resettled them in Sierra Leone. And that's the beginning of the British colony of Sierra Leone. Interestingly, of course, the capital is Freetown of Sierra Leone. And the the British after 1833 when they banned slavery in the British Isles, uh, in in all of their territories, if they found uh, enslaved persons, they would take them to Freetown and set them free. Uh, And so among other things, Protestantism reaches uh, West Africa largely through Sierra Leone as enslaved people are uh, meet Christianity, an African-based Christianity, and then take it home with them as they find their way back to their own tribe. So that's the expansion of, of Christianity. So Americans try to imitate that and create the colony of Liberia next door and try to settle people. 1832 is the end of this attempt of gradualism, one could argue. What happens in that year is It's the year before England, led by Wilberforce, is going to abolish slavery. But um, what happens is there is a bill that reaches the General Assembly, the Virginia legislature, calling for adoption of the same bill that has been adopted in New York and Pennsylvania uh, in the 1770s, that is to end slavery, and to do it by uh, waiting until uh, people reach a certain age. It's the year in which the largest number of people are transported uh, to, to Liberia through the African Colonization Society. Uh, it is a period of time of some hope for those who are in favor of abolition. And I am getting my name wrong, but the leaders of the effort, I think, um, are uh, Patrick Henry's grandson and maybe James Madison's grandson. You've got, uh, you've got some people who are deeply involved Uh, and interested uh, in this effort. It fails by one vote. And that's the last serious attempt of any colony that has enslaved people to end enslavement by peaceful means in the American colonies, in the American states. Now what I haven't seen in, in the book i love to see, I would love to see is a detailed description of who voted how and uh, what churches were saying and uh, who had anything to say about that about that debate so I guess my, my, my general point is one that gets would make uh, in her book when she talks about basically the establishment of slavery by 1700 through all these efforts and the use of arguments from Christianity in favor and against. She ends up with the enslavers winning, but she says they are powerful Christian arguments that could not ultimately be silenced on the side of liberation. So there is, I think, a story of some hope. There are moments. I would say, in general, my reading of at least American church history and of European church history is that Churches are best against new sins, and they have some difficulty dealing with old sins. So, if something begins to go wrong, you can look around, and clergy preach against it, and there's a, uh, churches and societies set up against it. A um, hundred years later, people are not so strong in their denunciation of those things. But even still, there comes that moment when religious arguments provide moral capital and lead to real social change. So that's my prayer that God in his spirit will continue to work in our society and (coughs) let us not uh, be despairing that good arguments which seem to have reached a kind of loggerhead uh, have not gotten the ends that we want yet. (coughs) Because God is gracious and over time some of those arguments reach fruition. And I've been talking a lot, um, and I'd be glad to have comments, extensions, observations by people who know more about these things than I do, uh, who would like to share any thoughts. Yes, Susan. I know, percent what we know, so this is a question. Okay. That's, in about uh, 1960, Van Harvey, the great historian at uh, Yale, who taught about the American South, um, wrote a a funny little essay about um, the historiography of the American uh, Civil War. And what he argued is that um, we uh, keep going through three stages of argumentation. Uh, And the first stage is people uh, resurrect arguments that actually were in place before the war started. Uh, which is, uh, this is a state's rights question, uh, this is a question simply about slavery, uh, and that there is then uh, uh, about 40 years later or something, people begin to realize uh, that there are other things going on and that the story is more complex. And then, I've forgotten, He has, there's a third stage where people try to, uh, to knit together a new narrative that takes into account all these other counter-narratives that have been picked up. So I think what we're doing is we're getting ready, we're going through that same process again. You know, uh, was this, what was the one thing that caused the Civil War? And Van Harvey's answer was there wasn't one thing. Uh, But we're at a moment in public discourse for reasons of, if you will, moral capital uh, in terms of our current arguments, we're going to say there's a single reason. Uh, And so we will argue that there is a a, a single reason, you know. Um, I I think that it is economics, it is an argument about the Constitution, it is an argument about religious life. It is uh, all sorts of things. I think the complications that we've heard about in the last couple of years are, it turns out, of course, that because of economic changes in the 1830s and 40s, that it's not just the South that's benefiting from slavery. People have figured out how to repackage the labor of other people in such a way that it can be shared more broadly and uh, even free, people in the south I and mean, the argument used to be you know my ancestors were poor farmers or some of my ancestors were poor farmers in parts of Virginia who couldn't possibly you know uh, employ uh, own enslaved people because they were too poor and so what do I have to do with it well, it turns out that those poor farmers were renting the labor of enslaved people for a month while they needed to clean a field and so while you know, maybe 30% of the population was slaveholding, a much bigger percentage actually was benefiting from that, from that labor. So there's a, uh, I, I think it's, it, it's very complicated. Uh, and, and so I don't, I, just, slavery clearly was a key issue, uh, was an important issue, though Lincoln behaved like the British soldiers did in terms of um, not initially himself claiming that that was the cause of the war, and only bringing it in when uh, one of my heroes, people like Charles Pettit McElvain uh, and Philander, uh, <coughs> let's see, Chase, what's his name? Chase, Salmon P. Chase, um, who were both active Episcopalians, one a bishop, one the son of a bishop, or the nephew of a bishop, began to push him uh, to, for an Emancipation Proclamation. So it's a, it's a complicated story. So that's my non-answer. <laughs> that helps. yeah have you found anything about um especially in the first half of the 19th century what clergy including clergy specifically but any clergy was having to say about But certainly there is a sort of southern gentleman argument that some clergy pick up, which is, we know it's a bad institution, but we can't figure out how to live without it. And therefore, um, you know, there was a certain kind of uh, skepticism that was part of, you know, the planter class. Uh, You know, they recognized they were doing something wrong. And the the, the parallel that I think of today um, is that many of us, have electronic devices that are probably produced by people uh, in parts of the world who uh, mine materials for use here and who put together materials at great cost to them, uh, which are, in effect, some kind of involuntary servitude. And we can't figure out um, quite how to live without them. Uh, And so I think that's a common common attitude. the, uh, th- there's a, a book about um, Harriet Jacobs, who is a, um, uh, uh, Harriet Jacobs is a woman who is in <laughs> slavery in North Carolina, escapes and goes to uh, New York and then writes an autobiography with a, an assumed name and uh, it's one of the f- few African-American people describing institutional slavery. And it's really a kind of me too book because she is, she's a house servant and the, her m- major reason for flight is uh, the owner would like to have a relationship with her that she would not like to have. But anyway, um, she describes the clergy that she comes in contact with. And um, the at least the edition I have has got these wonderful notes in the back. Uh, two of them she identifies are Episcopal clergy and she's mad at a Methodist clergyman and, and some other people. But she uh, she notes that some are sympathetic and some are not sympathetic and she doesn't mind uh, you know, pointing out that you know I'd never go to this clergy person, and this one is really terrible. And this proclaimer. So anyway, there, there's one Episcopalian that looks good uh, in her book, which is um, w- which is certain there. Are lots that do not, uh, and I'm sure the same is of other uh, other folk. What is the name of that book again? Uh, well, it's something like the autobiography of a slave. But if you look under Harriet Jacobs uh, on the web and and look for her. Autobiography. It's a. It's an interesting, uh, interesting tale. <coughs> um, one last question. Yeah. And then I'll. Yeah. Oh, when the argument worked, where was it being made? I think it did help that you had um, some people of prominence uh, who were arguing uh, in the political realm. So it, it, uh, you know, and interestingly, even Arthur Ramsey, who was a South Carolinian uh, who was involved heavily in the slave trade, um, he turned around and began to come out against the slave trade and blame everything on the British and had sort of a, uh, repentance later in life, though I don't think he gave up any of the money that he accumulated as a result of that. Uh, but I think it did make a difference that you know, if Wilberforce were not in the parliament, uh, people might not have heard his voice. Um, and if Rush were not an ear to uh, the leaders in Pennsylvania, uh, perhaps Philadelphia would not have become the center of the free black population um, uh, in the United States in the 1780s. Uh, so that you needed uh, some people of, of importance. Thank you all very much uh, for Thank a rush presentation. Yeah.